can all parents say, amen? No. Again, we used to do this years ago. We think as, as, as pastors, we think it's important to have our kids hear us praise, hear us worship. I think it's good for us to, for them to experience that um, as a family. Happy New Year. It's been a good kind of a mucky, rainy beginning to a new year, um, but I hear there's snow coming. That's what I hear. Yay, yay. All right, well, we're going to continue in our study in the book of Mark. So turn to Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10 this morning. We're going to talk about this idea we've been seeing through the gospel of Mark of this transformation by love. Um, I have asked this question, I'll ask this question through our message even this morning. You know, when did the disciples get it? When did they get it? And it's a transformation of, of love for them, seeing what Jesus has done and how he's teaching them. I think a good modern example of character transformed by love is none other than Tony Stark. All you teenagers and young people out there of Iron Man, right? We met Tony Stark first as Iron Man. Remember, he was a very greedy, obnoxious, man-centered person. He only wanted to get things done for himself. However, for any of those who ever watched the Avengers Endgame, we, my, my, my kids were into those movies uh, growing up. We witnessed a man who was changed. He gave the final sacrifice, not just for himself, but for people he didn't even know. You see, in, in modern um, movies and things, listen, we can point out redemption and point people to Jesus. See, everyone loves a good redemptive story, right? You probably watched the movie this weekend. Man, I hope the good guy wins. Well, we know a story, the gospel story, where the good guy does win. And he is our king of kings, and he is our lord of lords, amen? And we know the end of the story. See, this is what we see in the life of the disciples. Despite their desire in the end, love has transformed them into true followers of who he is. This type of love of our Savior had for us, he wanted to teach them that kind of love. And we're going to see as he is pouring into them, he's discipling the disciples. That's what we're finding out here, this last stage of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross, See, in this gospel, we see Jesus showing them how to serve, how to care, how to love, not only each other, but for those that would persecute them and hate them. See, they can now live and show this love to the world, and this, my friends, is what we have been learning in the gospel of Mark. This is about Jesus. This is about him pouring into young men, into his followers, what love is, and what he had come to do. So as we get to Mark 10, we are going to look at four lessons that we see Jesus teaching his disciple. But however, I, I think it's, it's, it's important for us to understand as well, these are four lessons we can apply to our life today. So I'm just going to go over those first four lessons that will take us through our message this morning. First, we see Jesus in verses 1 through 10, when he's talking to the Pharisees, he's teaching the disciples, go back to the source of your answers. Go back to the truth of God. That's what we need to do as followers of Jesus. Whatever comes our way, we go back to the source. We go back to truth. What does the Word of God say? And we'll, we'll give a little bit more into that as we get to that point. Number two, our life lesson we learn, everyone is significant. We, this is the story we'll find in Mark 10 of Jesus blessing the children. You remember the disciples? You can't come to Jesus. You can't come to Jesus. And in Jesus, as it says, was indignant. He was angry with the disciples. Everyone is significant. Every person here on this earth was created by God. 
and has purpose on this world for his glory. Number three, the rich young ruler, we will learn that not all will follow. The disciples get a, a, a quick lesson on someone who turns away from being a follower of Jesus. Not all will follow. And lastly, we will learn with the story of James and John, his mother, their mother asking Jesus, so which side of the throne will my boy sit? A life lesson is you are not as important as you think you are. You're not as important as you think you are. So let's look at our lesson this morning. We're going to start in Mark chapter 10, verse 1. And of course, he has a conversation with our, the friendly neighborhood Pharisees, right? Our good friends. Verse 1, and he left there and went into the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. The crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them, and the Pharisees came up to him in order to test, circle that word, test him, and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. There's a couple things historically and culturally we want to understand in this, these first four verses. So Jesus crossed the Jordan River into the area of Perea, which is now modern-day Jordan. And you say, okay, what's the big deal? The big deal is this. That region was ruled by Herod Antipas. You remember who Herod Antipas was? Herod Antipas was the king who killed Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. Okay, so just keep that in mind. Many scholars believe that this question that was asked to Jesus about divorce, there was a purpose for it. Why was John the Baptist killed? Do you remember why, why, why was John the Baptist killed? He was killed because he verbally disagreed with the relationship of King Herod and his new wife, who was his brother, King Philip's wife. And so he continued to just speak how he disagreed with this relationship. And finally, King Herod's wife says, listen, this guy's got to go. And he ended up getting beheaded. Well, it is believed, scholars believe that this question that Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, the Pharisees were hoping for the same demise of Jesus. Think about it. So Jesus goes off like John the Baptist is on this issue on divorce. Hey, your relationship with, this, with your king, it, oh my goodness. He, Jesus disagrees with this relationship. Hey, the Pharisees go to King Herod. Hey, um, what do you, uh, you hear about John the Baptist? I mean, you hear about Jesus, John's cousin? Do you, do you hear he, his disagreement with the relationship, hoping that they would execute Jesus? Well, that's not what Scripture does for us. And the Pharisees here get a simple Answer no here because Jesus was to die on the cross for the sins of humanity. See, this question was to test him, to make him come into a mistake. But we know he was God, he was perfect, that could not happen. So Jesus asked the Pharisees a question. So what did Moses say? Well, you write a certificate for divorce, okay, then it's good to go. Well, understand Deuteronomy 24 talks about the that why and when divorce can happen. Again, our, our focus is not divorce this morning, but we need to understand the, the, the context of the text this morning. There's three schools of thought in the Pharisaical world at that time. Rabbi Shema, he was a Pharisee, believed in the traditional model, the only reason for a divorce is for adultery. Of course, Jesus teaches that in Matthew chapter 19. There was Rabbi Hawah, a little bit more of a liberal in the sense of this particular subject matter, and he, he believed in any cause divorce. Your wife burns your meal. She's a brawling woman. She's disrespectful. You can tell her to hit the road, a certificate of divorce. Then there was Rabbi Akaba. 
Rabbi Akaba was a very, very liberal Pharisee, and he believed in his view of divorce was this. If you found a woman prettier than your wife, you can divorce your wife. So which view do you think was most popular? Yep, you know what? I don't like you. I like you now. You see what the most popular view was at the time? It causes any cause divorce. Well, understand, this is what Jesus responded to the Pharisees. He didn't talk about divorce. And Jesus said to them, verse 5, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Let me just say this. This text right here could answer a lot of questions in our culture today. Can it? One man, one woman. Boy, isn't there confusion about all that today? One man, one woman for life. Jesus did this. He didn't talk about the issue of divorce. He says, okay, what did Moses say? Let's go back before Moses. What did God say about marriage? I think the first lesson we see the disciples learning here is this. Jesus took them, the disciples, go back to the source of all things. Go back to what God says. What is truth? What does the word of God say? He told the Pharisees, marriage from the beginning was one man, one woman. No longer two, but one flesh. The permanency, the intimacy of marriage. This is what he was focusing the Pharisees on. Not on the issue of divorce. What was in the intention of marriage from the beginning. See, marriage is a fundamentally a physical relationship. It can be broken per scripture in three ways. One, death. Two, Matthew 19, adultery. First Corinthians chapter 7, abandonment. They're the three areas scripture te- teaches about divorce. Jesus didn't address the issue of divorce. He addressed the issue of marriage. This idea of leaving and cleaving in Genesis chapter 2, 24, the word cleave there in the Greek is the word like glue, super glue. I do a lot of hiking, and so one of, in my survival kit, I put a tube of super glue. You know what that's for? That is for any open wound that someone gets. What does that super glue do? It holds that that, that cut together. In fact, one of the years we took the teens up to Canada, one of our teens cut himself with a machete, and it was a Megan, Megan Myers was along on that trip, and she says, ah, you're fine, put some super glue on it. He ended up had to get stitches when he came home. It held, it held for a week, but Jesus getting this, given this idea of here, this is what marriage is supposed to be. Again, he didn't address a divorce with the Pharisees. What did God say marriage was? Going back to the source of authority. Verse 10, now the disciples, they go into a house, they, they were asking Jesus about the matter. Again, remember, Jesus is discipling the disciples here. He's discipling disciples. And they asked, listen, so let me just, what, what, what did you mean by that? What, what, so what's, what's the deal of divorce? Because understand, Ju- uh, the, the disciples in their Jewish mindset, they had those three areas of divorce. Rabbi Shema, Halah, and Akaba. They had those three views. So the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, what's the scripture say? Well, Jesus answers. He says to them, verse 11, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now we see Matthew's account, of course, is adultery is a reason for divorce. Again, our purpose this morning is not to talk about divorce. We kind of gave you what scripture says about it. Our, fo- our focus on this particular part of the story is this. What issues will we be tested with today? 
What issues, and particularly parents with young kids, what your kids are being, what's being thrown down their throat in society, in education, in the area of sexual orientation, in the area of gender. I don't care what a philosopher says. I don't care what Oprah says. I don't care what this talk show says. We need to do what Jesus did, go back to the source. Go back to truth. Again, we kind of, in that, that text there in, in Mark 10, he, Jesus answered several questions of issues that we're having today in our culture. Are there 52 genders? No. One man, one woman. What is marriage? One man, one woman for life. That text there answers several cultural issues that are happening today. What do we need to do? Young people, listen to me. You are living in a time where it is tough to make a stand for Christ and for truth. If you follow this example that Jesus showed the disciples, always go back to truth. Always stand on the word of God. You can't go wrong. Will you be criticized? Yes. Will you be mocked? Yes. You will be. But you can always count on standing on the truth of God's word. Amen, parents? And you need to be there to be the support for them because you and I did not go through that. It is being shoved down throats. Ask some of the school teachers that are here this morning, and they will tell you that. Go back to the source of all things. What does the truth of God say about these cultural issues? Okay, so now we see ourselves. Jesus handled this with the Pharisees. Now they're moving on. They're going back to Galilee, and guess what happens? Jesus is busy. Remember the book of Mark, we see Jesus going this and doing this and going here. He's busy. So now he's heading toward Galilee, back across the Jordan River. Verse 13, and they were bringing children to him and he, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked, that word there in the Greek, they showed strong disapproval for the children coming to Jesus. I just kind of scratched my head like, really? This is another tough lesson for the disciples here. Have you ever been in trouble like by yourself? Okay, it's, it's one thing being shown, you know, eating humble pie when you're by yourself, but when you have a group of people, when you're shown that you're wrong, it's like, ugh, this does not feel good. The disciples were rebuked by Jesus in a group of people. This is a hard lesson for the disciples. A couple things we need to know here about culture, the cultural significance about children coming to Jesus. See, during this time in Jewish culture, families were expected, if they could at any time, to have a rabbi be blessed, their children be blessed by a rabbi. And even today, in Jewish culture, to be blessed, have your child hands put on by a rabbi, that was something that they, the family would want to happen. See, even in Jesus' time, Jesus was considered a rabbi, and the children were brought to Jesus, and guess who rejected the children to come to Jesus? Yes, the God Squad, the disciples, these followers of Jesus say, no, no, you can't come to Jesus Verse 4, what did Jesus say to them? And when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. That there in, in the original language, he was angry. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying, on his, laying his hands on them. Jesus became indignant. There's one thing we're going to understand in the book of Mark. Mark shows the emotion of Jesus, un unlike any other gospels in, or any of the four gospels. Mark shows the emotion of Jesus more than any. What he's saying here is to start allowing the children to come. Stop preventing the children from coming to me. He had to rebuke his disciples. 
And they, disciples rebuked the pe- people for bringing the children. Jesus had to rebuke the disciples in front of those people. That's, that's a hard lesson to learn, a hard lesson to learn. All, all, including children who come to Jesus in childlike faith, they have free access to Christ. Amen? All of us have free access to Christ. If you're here today, you don't know Christ. Listen, he is there with his arms open wide. You come to him. You receive him like a childlike faith. He will come into your life, and he will change your life. Everyone here that's that's a Christian could tell you the life change in their life when they trusted Jesus Christ. See, God's kingdom is not gained by human achievement. Hebrews 2, 8, 9, for by grace are we saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's only through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Our second lesson the disciples learned in this embarrassing moment for the disciples is this. Everyone is significant. Everyone is significant. Brothers and sisters, I hope we don't have attitudes towards people that we come in contact with like, hey, I'm better than them. I live here. I got this education. I do this. And so you're beneath me. We think people are less significant. This is an example for us that everyone is significant. They were, we were all created in God's image, all right? And let's just talk about the children a minute. Don't we think even as a church that the children, like, yeah, they're just the little peons, they're the little, the little, you know, running around, chewing on carpet. Okay, yeah, that's true. You know, after, you know, after church, they're running around making noise, and that, that will happen if you are in here at any moment after church, they're running around here. And there's sometimes, you've got to get them to stop doing that. Why? Why? They're having fun at church. Don't you want them to have fun at church? You're sitting talking about what you're going to do this week. You're joking with it. Let the kids run around. Yes, I don't expect them to destroy everything. I have fun with the kids. The Smith kids, the Marchiano kids, little Wyatt running around here. When sometimes I'll come down here. Hey, guys, come here. I want to tell you something. Did you see the guy who lives under the stage? And they're like, and Riley says, what's his name? And she wanted to know his name. And I was playing along, and their eyes are looking. And then I really freaked them out, and I took them outside. Have you ever looked at the side of the church? There's a door that's this high. And they thought that was his front door to get into the bottom of the stage. Now, of course, I said, listen, I'm just kidding with you. But listen, these, these are the things. Adults, I know that we are beneath ourselves. You know, we have to stoop to children. But they are the church. They are the future leaders of this church. And to let the kids run and have fun and enjoy themselves. That's, that's a memory that I have growing up. You know, we would go get a football, go get something, go get our church clothes all dirty outside and receive the wrath of my mother later, but I, it was awesome. Why? Because we're with our friends. And church together with people, seeing my parents talk, seeing, playing with the kids that were my parents' friends. Let the children enjoy the children Pour into them. Get to know their names. I know they're little kids running around, but you know what? They're the future of the church. Everyone is significant in God's eyes. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, let no man despise your youth. Let no man despise your youth. Everyone is significant. Okay, deep breath. Okay, now Jesus is walking, continuing to walk down the road to Galilee. And we see here in verse 17. Now, before we get into this, this individual, the rich young ruler, I want us to keep in mind of what we learned a couple weeks ago in Matthew 8, the job description of being a follower of Jesus. Okay, keep that in mind, because this man here will reject that job description. And this is a, a tough lesson for the disciples to see. He sees it. 
So let's look at verse 17. And he was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt, underline that word, knelt before him, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I want you to underline that phrase. We're going to touch on that phrase. We bypass that. When I read that, okay, Jesus looked at him and loving him. There, that's, that's important, this phrase right here. I'll tell you why in a moment. And Jesus said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Verse 22, he disheartened it by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions couple things here about this man. I believe him calling Jesus, kneeling down, he knelt down to show honor. He called him good teacher. And Jesus asked, well, the only person that's good is God. Scholars believe that this man truly knew who Jesus was. Truly believed who Jesus was. He was a law keeper from his youth. It tells us there in the text. If we know the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments deal with your relationship with God. Commandment 5 through 10 is your relationship with people. Well, this individual, this young man, was keeping all the law, dealing with his relationship with people, the do's and the don'ts. I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do that. You know, the checklist Christianity that many of us have been participating in at time to time. Jesus looked on him, look at verse 21, and loved him. That word love there, he showed affection, love and high regard to this rich young ruler. This is the love of Jesus we cannot understand. Now remember, as we started out the book of Mark, we believe Mark is, through the Holy Spirit, writing down these stories we believe coming from Peter, who's telling these stories, and, and through the Holy Spirit, Mark is jotting this, this, this gospel down. Let me ask you this. Knowing that, in, in, as far as studying Scripture, do you think Jesus, do you think Peter knew what that look, look, looked like? Do you think Peter knew what that, because it's very funny, who knows the look? Okay, so guys, let me ask you this question. You know exactly when your wife is mad at you. <laughs> Why one look, right? You know, you walk in the door, I'm going back out with the dog, right? You know when she's pleased with you. And you're like, ah. Jesus showed a look of love, and Peter understood that look, didn't he? Despite his frailty, despite his, his sin, despite what Peter has done to Jesus, Jesus always showed his love to Peter. In fact, we know in Matthew 16, on this rock I will build my church, he told Peter. I love what Peter says in his epistle, 2 Peter 3, 9. He says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus, Peter knows the love of Jesus here. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This young, rich young ruler couldn't do one thing. He followed the commandments, the relationship issue with humanity. Yes, I, treat, I don't commit this, I don't commit that. But he couldn't give up his God of money to follow the true living God. See, it, it, it's, it's 
kind of an inter- interesting thought in the Old Testament in the Jewish mindset that like in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and Deuteronomy chapter 8, when he talks about blessing or being blessed from God, it's talking about lands and, and possessions. So this rich young ruler, according to the law, well, hey, I must be blessed by God. So I must have God shining favorably down on me. But Jesus, again, gives that job description. Listen, if you're going to be a follower of me, this is what needs to happen. Sell all you have and come follow me. And he could not do it. Listen, not all will follow. Not all will follow. And that is our third life lesson this morning. Jesus is showing the disciples not everyone is going to be a follower of Jesus. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? Verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. See, Jesus shows here the impossibility for a rich man who who loves his money and his materialism to enter the kingdom of God. And he uses a needle. Now, understand there's, this, this, there's some thought that there is a city gate in Jerusalem called the camel's eye or the camel gate, and, and it was like the eye of the needle, and the camels couldn't fit through that. However, archaeology says that there's really no proof of that gate anywhere in the city. So, and you think about it, when you study it, the people that said that gate existed said that, that, that the camel could get through that gate if it took out all its belongings that was on its back and would get down on its knees and scrunch through that door. It could possibly get through. Would Jesus be saying that about eternal life? No. He's using this illustration, the eye of a needle. Yes, a rich man will get to heaven just like a camel will get through the eye of a needle. And it's very interesting. Luke uses the word bellone. In his accounts, you know what Bellone is? It's a surgical needle. And Dr. Luke would know a lot about a surgical needle, wouldn't he? So this is exactly what it is. Jesus is saying it's impossible for a rich man to get in the kingdom of God, just like a camel going through the eye of a needle. Have you ever seen someone reject Christ? I was probably 20, 25. I seen my grandfather... My mom's dad was dying, and he had heart problems, and he was in his hospital bed and went to go visit him in Lancaster, and he, he was on his deathbed, and my dad was been witnessing him for years, and he, my dad's like, Jay, let's, let's go out and talk to your grandfather one last time. And we go out, and we sit there, and I'm sitting on the hospital bed, I'm looking to him at the chair, my dad's over here talking, and he, and it's, and he goes to, he goes to my, my grandfather, and he says, Jack, what is keeping you from trusting Christ? I mean, this is years my father has been sharing with his father-in-law. And he looked at my dad, and I, I, can, I can see it just as like it was yesterday. He looked at my dad, he said, pride. And he put his head back down, and he never just spoke again. You talk about a life lesson? Not all will follow. But look at verse 27. And this is where we rely on grace, and there is hope. As far as we know, my grandfather died, he left this world, and went to eternity in hell. Because we have to go back to what the truth of God says. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you don't, you will spend eternity separate from God in hell. But look at verse 27. Jesus says, listen, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. 
And all we can hope, and, and all we, as a family, we hope that in those 24 hours that somehow God was drawing him to himself. We will never know that. I pray that someday when we go to heaven that we see him. So what's that do for us? Not all will follow, but as Jesus looked at this rich young ruler, he loved him. We continue to love those people that we're praying for for salvation. We don't stop loving them. We don't stop praying for them because with everything, God, it is possible. Isn't it great to know that, God, we don't need to see, get someone saved. We don't save people. God does. God saves. The Spirit woos. God calls. And on those deathbeds, we, like my grandfather, I have no idea. Is God still on his throne then? Could God have still been working in his heart? Absolutely. Because with God, all things are possible. So continue to pray for those people in your life. Continue to love on them. Because with all, all things, it is possible with God. Verse 28. Peter actually says something good here. It makes sense. Usually he's putting his foot in his mouth through the Gospels. But Peter, in verse 20, began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. That's the, that's, there's, the, there's the little person, the P word there. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first Here's what Peter's saying. Yeah, listen, we bought the T-shirt. I got the bumper sticker on my car. I'm wearing the WWJD bracelets. We bought into this. So, hey, we're following you. When we follow Jesus, each of maybe in your families, and you think maybe you're a first-generation Christian, did you lose friends? Did you lose family? Now, prosperity teachers will take this verse, we get a hundredfold, we become a Christian. That's not a selling point. That's not the reason we become a Christian. Here's an example, I believe, what Jesus was saying. When we lost friends and family and co-workers because we started walking differently and talking differently because we are a new creation in Christ, we lost some good friends, didn't we? But didn't God bless us with a lot more? With the church? And our brothers and sisters who are really, truly our friends and God has blessed us, amen? For those who have lost friends because of turning to Christ, God will bless you with friends you will never, ever, ever want to get rid of. I love what industrious R.G. Latourne says this, if you give because it pays, it won't pay. If you're just trying to be a Christian because you want all the benefits of Christianity, you're going to see it's, it's, it's not the right decision to make for that reason. Many who are first in their own eyes will be last in God's eyes. This is what Jesus was teaching here in the Gospels. We see Jesus is on mission here. He's on purpose. We see here the word amaze in the book of Mark. And scholars tell us that Jesus was on point. It was something about that the disciples were amazed that he kept walking towards Galilee, walking towards Jerusalem and teaching and preaching. He didn't take a lot of time. He was on point, on purpose. Why? Because he was going to die for the sins of humanity. He knew what his purpose was here on earth. And just quick overview in verses 32 and 34, this is the third time that Jesus tells his disciples of what's going to happen to him. 
Look at verse 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and three days he will rise. What happened the first time when Jesus told this to the disciples? What did Peter do? Well, Jesus, that put, stop right there. He became indignant. No, 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 no. We're, we'll have your back. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. So you would think the disciples learned their lesson. But I, the reason why I love the disciples, you know why? Because I do the same thing. I lose my focus at times in my Christian faith. So verse 35, Jesus just shares, listen, I'm going to die. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to die on a cross. This is what's going to happen. You know, if that's you or me, like, wow, like, man, that's, that's, that's heavy. Look at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. <laughs> Can you put that in perspective of just what Jesus just told them? Listen, you, we want you to do what we, want, what we ask you to do. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? In verse 37, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in glory. Wow. Now there's some history here we want to kind of understand um, with this. Because I, when, I, when I read this text, and Matthew's account actually shit tells us that it was their mother who asked Jesus, and I was sitting, as I read, studying this, the, the, a couple weeks ago, I was studying this, and I was like, what, why would a woman just go up and ask Jesus, hey, wh wh where's, my, where's my son's going to be in your kingdom? Well, we kind of look at some history here, and um, some of the, the, gene the genealogy comes into play here. It is believed Salome, who was the mother of James and John, was the sister of Mary, which makes James and John the cousin of Jesus. Now I'm like, okay, this kind of makes sense now. Why? How many of us have gotten jobs or gotten positions because we knew someone who worked there? Raise your hand. Come on, all of us probably at some point, where you, you know, your uncle, your aunt, your, was some, someone worked or you got a position or something. Here's Aunt Salome. Hey, Jesus, what are you going to do with your cousins in the kingdom? Isn't that, that doesn't, doesn't make more sense. Hey, we're family, you know. Verse 38, and Jesus said to them, do you not know what, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said, we are able. Understand that, that word drink the cup is, is a, the, in the Greek understanding, it's going through a difficult experience in the cup, meaning the cross, that lifestyle of losing your life for the sake of others. They say, oh yes, we're, we're ready to do that. Peter, James, and John, the, four, the three guys in the inner circle that Jesus spent most of his time with discipling, they still didn't get it at this point, did they? But we know history. James, one of the first leaders of the church in Acts chapter 12, he was martyred by being beheaded. He got it. John, old man in the Isle of Patmos, being a prisoner, wrote the gospel, wrote the epistles. John wrote Revelation. He got it. Now look at verse 41. Just, just think of yourself at work. Think of yourself 
in this situation. <laughs> and when the ten heard this conversation, they became angry or indignant. <laughs> Why would you, you ask Jesus, what is wrong with you? Can you, can you see the, the scuttle among the disciples? Can you believe they get, yeah, do you imagine that? And Jesus brings them back. Hey, listen, guys, listen, let, let me tell you how this looks. This is what it's going to be for us. Look at verse 42. And Jesus called them and said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and they are great ones. Exercise authority over them, but it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you will be your servant, and whoever will be a first among you will be a slave of all. Verse 45, you have not underlined or highlighted this verse. This is the theme verse for the book of Mark. This is Jesus' purpose. He is showing them he's going to be example of servanthood. For even the Son of Man came to be served, but not to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Our final lesson is this. You are not as important as you think you are. James and John were not anything special because they may have been related to cousins of Jesus or they were followers of Jesus. Jesus tells them this, listen, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He was setting an example of how his disciples and we 2,000 years later should follow. Think about it for a minute as we close. Do we serve in ministry? Do we do things for church? to get notoriety, to get fame, to get recognized. It's funny, Pastor Frank found some plaques that were stored away there in the conference room of just all these names and these plaques that say, you know, they serve this ministry, blah, 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 and all these names, and I'm like, they just, that, that's the reward. <laughs> that's the reward, the earthly reward. They got their name on a wall. But some of us, that's what we want. We want earthly recognition, and Jesus saying, listen, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve for the purpose of giving my life. Why do you serve in the church? Why do you do what you do? It should be for Jesus and Jesus alone. I don't care what anyone else thinks. You know, if, if you have the attitude, well, if I'm, not doing, if I'm not in charge of this ministry, then, you know, then it's just all gonna go to pot. No, because it's not your ministry. If Pastor Frank and I would happen to walk away from being a pastor, we'd go somewhere else, guess what? Faith Bible Church would be a well, well and alive and good. Why? Because this is Jesus' church. Now, we're not going anywhere. I'm just, just using that as a reference. But so many times we, we hold a lot of fate on, on people and positions. Oh, we can, what are we going to do? Jesus is the pastor of this church. We're just here using our gifts and abilities. And so as we serve Christ... It's for him and him alone. This is a, a beautiful picture of servanthood. He's shown his disciples, listen, you're not as important as you think you are. You're not. And I want to say that to us. We're not as important as we think we are. This is Jesus' church. They're his ministries. You're his people. We're his people. So let me just recap what we learned today, and we'll close. With a lesson with the Pharisees, when we're tested, when culture's trying to test us, and we will be, always go back to truth. Always go back to what the source of the answer is, and that should be for us as Christians, is the word of God. Number two lesson, everyone is significant. Never treat anyone lower than yourself. Love all people, particularly little rugrats that are running around here, okay? They are the future leaders of the church. Love on them, have fun with them, 
Everyone is significant. We learn with the rich young ruler, not all will follow. But it doesn't mean we don't continue. We continue to pray, continue to love on those people that are at work or in our community or in our family that just are totally have their back to the gospel. Guess what? We need to continue to love and pray for them because with God, everything is possible. And lastly, when it comes to ministry, Jesus was teaching these disciples. Yeah, after being asked by James and John, hey, where am I going to be in the kingdom? We're not as important as we think we are. We're not as important as we think we are. Continue to serve because Jesus wants us to serve, and we're doing it for him, okay? Let's take those lessons, and let's apply them to our life this week. Great stories. I love reading through these gospels. I'm learning a lot. Hopefully, you are as well, and so hopefully, you have a great week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all you've done for us. We thank you, Lord, for um, just these lessons um, that you so vividly give us in the gospels, just dealing with humanity, just like us. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for dying for our sins and making a way that we could have a right relationship with you and ultimately be in heaven with you forever and ever. Heads bowed, eyes closed. If you're here today and, and um, you don't know anything about this Jesus that we're, 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 we're talking about, we would love to introduce you to him. This story that we read in Mark 10, he, his purpose was coming to die for the sins of you and me, for the world. And the Bible tells us that if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if we ask him into our life and ask for forgiveness, ask him to save us, he will do just that. We will be a new creation, a new creature in Christ. If you have any questions, please see Pastor Frank, myself, the person that brought you. We would love to introduce you, the best decision you ever make in your life. And then when you come to Christ, you'll understand that everything we do, we do for God, we do for his glory. And such a privilege to be used by the creator and the sovereign king of the world to accomplish his will and purpose. Father, if there's people here that need to know you, Father, may you just work in their hearts. You're the one that draws. You're the one that calls. And thank you so much for that. We love you. Give us a great week in your precious name. Amen. Let's stay together.